So hopefully you all grab sermon notes because you all paid attention. On these sermon notes, on the very top of it, we don't normally do this, but today we are. Um, on the top of it right here, it says discussion, rate yourself in the following areas. One, I'm the worst. Ten, I'm awesome. On these five things. So I just want you guys to do that real quick. See, last service, half people got up and went and got sermon notes. Go, Eddie, go. Oh, oh so you're being a good husband and taking the hit for your wife. Way to throw her under the bus. <laughs> so just take a minute and just write those things down, one to ten, where you kind of rate yourself in, in those areas. Well, it'll be important a little bit later. We'll talk about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, point it out. So he's like, what's going on right now? So welcome to Elevate. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, we'd love for you to have one if you don't own one. Uh, again, there are these sermon notes, which you should already have. I, this last service too. I lost you all in the same spot. Like, la, 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 la. it's like some can't, people are like you got to read it out loud. La 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 la. I'm awesome. <laughs> you also like everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're me. There's somewhere else all the community tables. Uh, if you uh, you can also uh, download the app on a smartphone called UVersion. Uh, and you version, click on live, will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes and the questions and all that goes along. Today, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me? Read God's word. Uh, this is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3. I love that you're still giggling. <laughs> 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, and it says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live and walk in the grace that you call us to live and walk in, but what our actions should look like on the backside of that. That you would teach us to be a people of humility as we walk in your grace. That we would honor you with our lives and how we live. That we lift you up in all things so the world would know how great and wonderful you are. But that we would still live in that humility. We ask that you would teach us today as we learn things from your word. Amen. Have a seat. So this is our Pharisee University. This is week two, hence the decor. This is our frat house. Isn't this what yours look like? I don't know. So this, this, this is our frat house. Um, this, this series uh, came about, I was reading a book two or three years ago by a guy named Larry Osborne. It's called Accidental Pharisees. Kind of filed it away in the back of my head, and now we're kind of coming back to it, doing this Pharisee University. Some things are taken out of the book, some things not so much. But this is the idea we're trying to help us recognize Pharisee traits in us. If you want to be a better Pharisee, how to live those traits. Or if you don't want to be a Pharisee, how to kill those traits when they're in us, just like the Pharisees killed Jesus. So we want to hopefully kill those traits in us. Uh, Some of you may not know a lot of the Pharisee history and story. It's kind of convoluted. I'll give you my best deal to sum it up so far today. Uh, No one knows precisely when the party of the Pharisees actually started. Uh, Most agree it was started as an ideological movement, kind of like a back to the Bible club. And eventually it evolves into this organized religious sect. In 538 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus allows all the captured Israelites to start to return to their country to rebuild their temple and the wall around their city. There's a movement that starts to take place through this, and that brings people to want to preserve a pure remnant of Israel, people who dedicate themselves to God, who follow the law. And this is what most people believe centuries later led to the Pharisees. Now, the first mention of the Pharisees isn't until the 2nd century B.C., 168 A.D. At this time, a guy named Antioch's Epiphanes shows up on the scene. He's such a good-looking dude right there. we still got busts of him. Uh, He's like a little Greek Hitler. 
uh, in the book of Revelation when it talks about the abomination of desolation. It's referring to this guy and what he did. Antiochus Epiphanes wanted throughout the ages to destroy and annihilate the Jewish religion. He wanted to make the entire Palestine area. He wanted to make it all Hellenistic or Greek. And so he besieges Jerusalem. He kills thousands of Jews. And then he offers sacrifices on the Jewish altar in the Jewish temple. And what he does is he brings a pig into the Jewish temple, which is an unclean animal, should not have been in the temple. And he sacrifices that on God's altar to the Greek god Zeus. Yeah, that, that, that's bad in case you don't know. The Jews are horrified. They are outraged by this, and they start to organize themselves into some re, uh, little guerrilla groups. This eventually led to this group called the Zealots. After tremendous fighting and bloodshed, they regained their freedom under a leader known as Judas. Uh, most white people will say Maccabeus, but so I'll just say it like that, in 165 B.C. Now, Judas, even today, is remembered as one of the great heroes of Judaism, uh, Hanukkah comes out of this retaking of the temple. They go in, there's only enough oil to burn for one day, and yet it burns for eight, and it's this miracle, and it's wonderful till they can make more oil to burn, and, and that's where Hanukkah comes out of. Now, in the midst of this record of this Jewish restoration, of this Jewish freedom here, there's a reference to a group, first comes out in this, to the Pharisees. Now, the word Pharisee, it meant separated ones because they separated themselves from the sin of their own country, but at times, when they felt they needed to, they also fought. They didn't fight all the time like the zealots, but at times they thought they needed to and they would step in and fight. Now from 134 to 104 BC, a new ruler and high priest steps in to the Israelite area. His name is John Hyrcanus. Now John, he's the son of Simon Maccabeus. Uh, he, what, what happened with him is that throughout the course of his reign, the Pharisees started to believe that he wasn't fit to rule and to reign. This is because his mother at one point was captured by the Greeks, and they believe they violated her multiple times, so she was raped. And they believe that, that uh, John wasn't Simon's son, but that he was a product of this rape, and so John then was a bastard. At a state banquet, when John is trying to bring different factions together, trying to make the government run a little better, he asks for any recommendations on improving the government. A Pharisee named Eleazar stands up and suggests that the best thing he could do for the government would be to resign because it's the only honorable thing for a bastard to do. That did not go over well, okay? <laughs> did not go over well. And so John Hyrcanus starts developing closer ties with the Sadducees, who you see eventually end up running the temple area and stuff like that when the, when the Rome takes over. Now, when John dies, his son takes over, but he only lives for about a year, so his wife steps in and starts ruling in some respects. Now, she loved the Pharisees because her brother was one. Her brother's name is Simon ben Shatak, and this becomes the Pharisees' rise to power and prominence. Uh, the Jewish, Greek, or Jewish Roman historian Josephus actually talks about when the Romans had the Sanhedrin in power, who are mostly Sadducees, uh, they still had to, he says, capitulate to the formulas of the Pharisees since otherwise the masses would not tolerate them. So the Sadducees are kind of in charge, and the Pharisees really have no political power except the people love them because the Pharisees were respected for being these freedom fighters who stepped in and tried to liberate their country. They're heroes of Jewish liberation. They're, they are brave men who preserved God's people. And a lot of Jews today don't really appreciate the fact that Christians hold Pharisees in such disdain today. You know, because, because, I mean, even to the extent that in the English language, we define Phariseeism as an attitude marked by hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Like I said last week, we should see some admirable traits in the Pharisees. I mean, history shows you that they were national heroes. They accepted the scriptures as God-given. 
uh, I mean, a uh, hundred years after they start their rise to power, though, Jesus shows up, and almost everything that Jesus teaches and believes goes almost exactly opposite of what the Pharisees teach. And what happens is you see this at the very beginning of their, of their rise to power, their pride. Because what happens when they, when they look at John Hyrcanus, and what's the first thing that they say? He's not fit to lead because his mother may have been raped. That's a very sad position to hold. And so it all comes down to the ideas and comparisons coming out on top. And if you want to be a good Pharisee, this is what you have to do. We're start here today. You have to see yourself as better than everyone else. That's our jumping in point. And if you don't know this, there are huge problems with comparisons, uh, even bigger ones with like spiritual comparisons. My, my friend Jared uh, coaches a t-ball team. Nobody on this t-ball team is Derek Jeter. Nobody. Their parents don't like thinking, but they're not. They're, they're all like your drunk uncle after a party. You know, they're, they can't. They're stumbling around, don't know which leg to, what leg to put their, on their pants. They're all just, that, that's what they're like. They're, they're t-ball players. Now, parents of t-ball players will say, oh, no, it's all about the game. It is just about the game, not how good our kids are. They should just have fun. But if one of those kids, one of those parents, hits the ball off the tee and happens to run around the bases and scores, they're beaming with pride. Like, oh, that is my kid. Better than your loser kids. That is my kid that just scored. But, but if your kid's out in the field, right, and they're like picking flowers or picking their nose or doing whatever, and they get beamed in the face with the ball, they're, they're concerned for their kids, but they really want to climb under the bleachers and be like, hope nobody knows that was my kid. Right? Like, oh, my goodness. I mean, even in T-ball, we have these categories of these winners and these losers. And you expand that from T-ball like spiritual comparisons and how we react to other people when they do things that we don't necessarily understand. I mean, we really have no idea what's going on in another person's heart and life. Why did somebody say what they said to you? Why did somebody do what they did to you? You know, what, what made them act that way? We make judgments all the time, and a lot of times our judgments are wrong. I mean, Jesus says about the Pharisees, they look very impressive on the outside, but on the inside, they were dead. See, when we compare, it's usually to try to make ourselves feel better. Like, you know, I may have failed, but at least I didn't fail like Charlie Sheen. Right? I always got that. At least I'm not that guy. I mean, and this is, this is the understanding that, that pride can be so dangerous because we do not even recognize it. When we think of pride, we don't tend to even call it what it is. Like, no one's going to take you to jail for pride. Looking down on someone, it's not like, you know, an offense that you're going to go to jail for. So we think it's not that bad. It falls somewhere between driving like an idiot and listening to country music. It's bad, but it's not that bad. Just somewhere right there. Larry Osborne points out that the characteristic of, of pride in all of these Pharisees is usually found among people who think they love God the most. That's where it's found. Like for a long time, the church in America, they only seem to love other Christians. That's what they seem to do. There are a lot of people who needed Jesus, who were lost from addictions to failed marriages, and they believe they'd never be welcomed inside of a church. I think that's beginning to change today. I think it's a very good thing. I think people with jacked-up lives are coming to realize that you know Jesus loves them. He wants to restore them. He wants to redeem them. I think the church is beginning to live that way and, and understand that. But something is replacing the disdain we once held for the lost. And that's this idea of people who call themselves Christians who are any less than sold out for Jesus. It's like today, we love the lost, we love those who love Jesus, but if you struggle in your walk, maybe even struggle with the same thing for a really long time, well, you start to feel less than everybody else. And today, the church simply exchanged one form of pride for another. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. This is a very classic story you probably all heard a hundred times. But Jesus tells a story to people who probably loved God, but didn't understand what their pride and superiority was doing to other people. 
As you turn there, just I'll, I'll read just the first line of it. It says, He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those are the people in the audience. Those are the people. They trust in themselves. They think they're righteous. They treat others with contempt, probably don't even realizing that they do it. These type of attitudes bother Jesus more than anything else. When Jesus asked, you know, what does eternal life look like in people's lives when they live it out? Luke 10, 27, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You want to know what following Jesus in eternal life looks like? Loving God and loving people. I mean, it's... When you look down on somebody, it's, it's not just that you notice their faults or that something's going wrong in their life. It's when you withhold that love. Contempt is withholding the love that God tells you to offer to them. And Jesus you know, is talking to these people who all say, I'm righteous. I follow God. But in fact, they work incredibly unloving and unrighteous because they failed to love people with the same love that God loved them with. Jesus tells this people who get this story that they think that they are so much better than everybody else because they've got God figured out. Who is that? Us. The story goes to us. Luke 18, verse 10, Jesus starts here. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. There you go, right? There you go. Pharisee. Good guy, yay, that's, that's our team. This is, everybody will look at the Pharisee and they will say, that guy is better than me. He has got it all together. Yay, Pharisee, that's the team. And a tax collector. Boo, hiss. We all hate the IRS, okay? That's a tax collector right there. Traitor to their country, scum of the earth, former singer in a boy band. <laughs> tax collector, okay, that guy. And you don't understand the story unless you understand what Jesus is trying to do and show these two opposite extremes and all the tension in it. Because when we come to pride and superiority, dealing with this problem, it's hard for us to recognize it in ourselves because we don't see it in ourselves. I think in some ways, pride is a very unique form of resentment and anger and greed. People will go to see therapists all day long for for problems with Anger with resentment and all of these things. Counseling offices are full of people who want to get better because they have this fear or anxiety and can you fix me? Can you do something to help me with this? Greed, mismanaged desires, addictions brings millions of people desperate into all kinds of 12-step programs every day. People buy books, they go to websites, they attend classes, they listen to talks on TED by the boatload trying to figure out how I can do this better, solve my problems. But I only have had one person that I can tell you that have ever come to me to talk about a problem with their pride one person why because the biggest problem with superiority and pride is people do not realize they suffer from it they don't think that they have that problem we think everybody else does but we don't have the problem so jesus says two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee the other tax collector boo the pharisee standing by himself prayed thus god i thank you that i am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector the guy's like thanks right I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And you've got to understand, that's true. That is, he's not blowing smoke. He's totally serious. That, that's totally true. We would meet this guy and we would say, that's a good man. That's what we would say. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is a loser. He has nothing to offer God. He makes his living by collecting huge sums of money from his other Jews and then passing it along to the Roman government. He's like if you owned a little mom and pop shop in the little of New York City, he'd be a guy that walks in and knocks over a shelf. Oh, look at that. You know what? You need some protection. 
you need to pay me, and we will take care of you. That's the best thing I got, okay. <laughs> you better pay up. Something worse may happen. I don't know. Say hello to my little friend. Okay. Right. He cries out for mercy because he knows he needs it. He knows he needs it. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. And if you have a Bible and you brought it with you, you should underline, and it's yours, you can like borrow it from your neighbor, but underline the word justified right there, justified. It means that God's righteousness was laid upon him. Was laid upon him. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, trusting in his own righteousness, left him worse off than the evil, mean IRS agent. I mean, do you know what irony means? This is, how the, this is how the dictionary defines it. The use of words to convey a meaning that is the opposite of its literal meaning. So your boss comes to you and says, hey, you have to work all weekend. And you say, how wonderful. It's sarcasm, but it's also defined as irony. Here's, here's the irony. The majority of contemporary Christians today in the church who hear this story about the humble tax collector and the self-righteous Pharisee, we say, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. That's what we say. Now, the people hearing this story would say, thank God I'm not like that tax collector. Today we do the exact same thing the crowd did, but opposite. We say, oh, that Pharisee's stupid. I'm better off than that Pharisee. He thought he had to earn his way into God's favor, but I'm smarter than that. I believe in God's grace. My theology is right. His theology is all messed up. Thank God I'm superior to that guy who thought he was superior to everybody else. (coughs) Irony. Irony. The Pharisee and the tax collector, they're going up to the temple at the time of the daily sacrifice. This means it's a public corporate event. There's lots of people going into the temple. People would have seen the tax collector going inside and wondered why he is in church. Okay, Maybe this is like you. Maybe you used to do drugs at some point. And one day you're in church service and your dealer walks in the door and you're like, What's he doing here? He shouldn't be in church. What do you want him to do? Go worship Satan? Seriously. Ah, what's he doing here? You know, maybe you had a one-night stand at some point, and that person walks in the room. You're like, oh, I can't believe that. Maybe somebody like DUI'd right through your garage door, and they show up at church the next Sunday morning. Like, oh, I can't. And you're totally shocked. They're probably shocked you're here. That dude buys drugs for me. What's he doing here? Right? We all do this. We all do. This is why we understand that Jesus, when he saves us, he makes us a humble people. We don't have the right to look and point our fingers at other people. Oh, look how horrible. We're all horrible. It is Jesus who saves us. It is grace upon grace upon grace. Now, at the temple, the priest would kill a sacrificial calf. He would go into the holy place, and he would burn incense. And at this point is when the people would pray. The crowds would start to pray out loud. So unlike our culture, like if I asked one of you, hey, would you pray right now? You would be like, would you pull off my fingernails instead? I would really rather have you. People hate praying out loud. But the Pharisee, he'd, I mean, he's considered righteous. He doesn't want to be unclean. The tax collector would be unclean because of his job and his connection with the Roman government. And so all these people like tax collectors, they're usually left outside the temple. You can't have people with sin in their lives going inside the church. That would just be horrible, Right? Right, Pharisees? Leave them out there. The righteous, they would go in and they would, they would pray. Jesus says on this day, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. And the Pharisee is not happy that there are sinners inside the house of God. Why? Well, they could contaminate it. That's why. 
I mean, can you imagine someone being in a church service who has sin in their life? Pfft. What is up with that? Can you imagine someone being in a church service who may judge another person and turn them off to the grace and love of Christ? Pfft. Never happened. Oh, my goodness. Right? Now, now the Pharisee starts to pray, and he prays to send a message. That's what he does. And believe it or not, if you want to be a good Pharisee, you better learn how to do this. Okay? You've got to pray to send a message. Like, last year I told you how my wife didn't want to go see the Lego movie with me. I mean, how horrible is that, right? So, I, you know, you sit down over dinner, and I would say, Dear Holy God above the highest heavens, I pray that you would touch my wife and forgive her for not going to see the Lego movie with me, and you would help her to love you and me more and go see it with me. Amen. Ladies, maybe, maybe your anniversary is coming up, and you sit down at dinner with your husband, and you're like, Dear Jesus, please don't let my husband forget her anniversary tomorrow. And buy that thing that I put on layaway at the store. He knows where it is. Amen. <laughs> this, this guy, the Pharisee, isn't praying. He's, he's sending a message. He's pr- saying it publicly so people can hear what he's saying. He's letting people know what righteousness looks like, and it looks like him. He says, I fast twice a week. Well, according to the Torah, Leviticus 25, an Israelite was only required to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. This guy does it twice a week. It's like a hundred times more than he has to. He is holy. He is amazing. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, according to the Old Testament, you only had to tithe on what you produced. So you produced oil, grain, whatever it was, you tithe on that. You didn't have to tithe when you got it, but, but when you produced it. I mean, so this Pharisee acts like a law like, like our government, right? You, you know, you pay taxes when you, when you make it, when you spend it, when you put it in a will. It's like, that's why we think he's dumb, right? Because we live in the middle of it. It's not very good. Now, so this guy ties on everything anyway. Again, generosity is never bad, but his generosity was a way to feel superior. This Pharisee thinks he can measure his spiritual maturity in the, and greatness in the eyes of God by all the religious activity he is doing instead of by the person that he is becoming. And that's what's important to realize. In Jesus, we, we don't work our way into God's favor. Jesus came and died and rose, so we get to be a people who have God's favor because Jesus lays it upon us. And that means that we live as a humble people because it's not something we do. It's something that's bestowed. So what kind of Pharisee are you becoming? Oh, yeah, three things. And, well, I have some more than that. I just took three out of his book that I'll, that I'll give you. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. This is how you can see if you're becoming a Pharisee, Okay. Matthew 7, this is called, number one is plank speck disease. It's our tendency to see the problem in others' lives but be oblivious to the ones in our own. Matthew 7, verse 3, Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly and take the speck out of your brother's eye. So do you keep a list? Maybe not on paper, in the back of your mind. Maybe this person hurt you, did something stupid, but you got a list of all the dumb things people around you do and always overlook the dumb things that you do. You know, do you tend to lash out at others or remaining oblivious to your own short bearings? Uh, this happens at Element occasionally. I'm not pointing out who. may have been you. I don't know. Okay. Uh, someone will send an email to our general mailbox, and that goes to a few different people. And they will say, oh, I love it at Element. And then they will give us this big, long laundry list of all the things we need to change to make Element more inviting to people like them. Okay. My first thought when I read these emails, if you ever sent it, this is my first thought. You know how element becomes more inviting? You don't know, right? You become more inviting. That's how it becomes more inviting. Like, you should do this. No, you should be nice and gracious to people. That will go a long way. 
right? You become more inviting. You become more inviting. Who, who's the last person you invited out to lunch? Who's the last person you invited to one of your gospel community events? Who's the last person you invited to your home? When is the last time you stepped in even to this place and looked around, saw somebody you didn't know, and either invited them to sit with you or you went and sat with them? Right? When, when's the Pharisees? You know, when, when's the last time? When, when is the last time somebody hurt you? Maybe they did something really, really dumb to you, and you actually sought them out first because you knew God calls you to reconciliation. When's the last time? Second thing, self-deception. Self-deception. This is when we evaluate ourselves. We're always going to cheat a little bit. We inflate ourselves in our own mind. Now, how do I know this to be true? My wife watches American Idol. That's how I know this is true. Who would let them go into those auditions and sing like that? What parent tells their tone-deaf kid, oh, yeah, you sound great. You should go on national TV. What is wrong with you people? (laughs) Now, I know you're all thinking, yeah, right, they're totally dumb. We all do it. We just all do it in different ways. There's actually the other side of this, the exact opposite side of this. Uh, Some people become too hard on themselves. They are also self-deceived. You're always putting yourself down. It's the same thing. It has been shown that even people who have self-esteem issues really have a high view of themselves. That's why they have all these self-esteem issues, because you're always focusing on yourself. And then when we focus on ourselves, we realize that we are not good gods. We are not good people to focus on. We must focus on Jesus, because he is the center of our lives. He is the one who brings redemption. So, in the book, I thought it was funny, in Larry Osborne's book, he talks about handing out questionnaires at a party and saying, are you above or below average in these areas? So, I gave that to you when we started on those areas, your ability to get along with others, your honesty, your work ethic, your basic intelligence, and your morality, okay? So, look at what you wrote down, like 1 to 10, right? Studies have been done that show over 95% of people will rate themselves as above average in those areas. That goes against the law of averages. Half of us in this room... Half of us in this room, we are below the line, okay? It's just a lot of averages. Not all of us can be above the line. You know, 80% of preachers believe they're above average. I am under no such delusions, okay? I, I want to apologize to you every week because you get me, and I'm really sorry about that, okay? Our problem, though, is not that we won't admit that we're below the line because sometimes we'll say, oh, yeah, I, I'm below average in this. We don't really believe it. We do not believe it. We all think we're better than average. We're better than we are. We have a natural sin-based bent to look down on others and to think we are better than other people. It is self-deception. It breeds pride and arrogance. Are you self-deceived? Yes, good. You're becoming a Pharisee. There you go. Number three, comparisons. Comparisons. Second uh, Corinthians 10, verse 12. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Without Now, if you take a step back, we do need some comparisons. We, we do. I mean, how else do we know that America's education system is falling so far behind countries like China and Sweden that it's just laughable? How else do you know that we're falling farther down on the ladder of freedom and those indicators? How else do we know what you should vote for if you're not, like, comparing two different things side by side? Uh, how do we know how to rate anything without comparisons? But when it comes to spiritual comparisons, things get really sketchy. Because we don't know what's going on in somebody else's heart and somebody else's life. We don't know if someone's come a long way or they've just, just come a little bit. We don't know with all the struggles that people have what's going on. Think of the last person you had a conflict with. If you're married, it's probably your spouse on the way to church this morning. Right? There you go. Do you get angry and hold things in because they don't understand what you're saying? They don't get what you're doing? They don't have your point of view? 
Maybe you've got to take a step back and ask, why do they respond the way that they do? And the answer is not they're stupid. Okay? That's not the answer. You know, circumstances lead people to the conclusions that they hold. And we have a tendency when we compare to look down on others because they aren't where we are. But honestly, seriously, maybe the opposite is true. Maybe you aren't where they are. Maybe that's true. Only Jesus knows someone's heart. And if you want to be a Pharisee, don't ask you know, why people are the way they are. You just judge them for it right off the bat. That's how you become a Pharisee. I mean, think about the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Okay? The Pharisee did not have to look at the tax collector the way he did. He chose to look at him that way. He could have had other thoughts. He could have seen this guy walk in and thought, imagine the courage it takes for this guy to walk into this temple right now. These people hate him. And yet he's walking in here. Maybe he's lonely. Maybe he's ashamed. Maybe he's afraid. Maybe he knows that he really needs the grace and the love of God, and that's why he's here. The Pharisee could have talked to him and said, I am so glad you're here. I think God is glad that you're here. We all need God's mercy. Can I pray for you out loud? You pray for me? What would that have done to the situation? Think about it. I think, you know, if he's listening to God's spirit, that's exactly what he would have done. I think you and I would do that as well. Because those are the kind of thoughts and behaviors that lives who have been surrendered to Christ and to his spirit and what he does in us brings. This is what God's spirit initiates. Religion only initiates pride. And that's what the Pharisees see religion as. It's all pride. It's your own self-worth. It's your accomplishments. What have you done? What have you done? What have you done? This is why Christianity is all about the humility, because Jesus is the one who saves us. It's not based on our deeds. Years ago, John Ortberg wrote this. He says, you can aim to love people, you can aim to impress people, but you can't do both. You can't do both. And if you ask this Pharisee, hey, how's your spiritual life going, Pharisee? I mean, he would have said, it's great, I worship, I pray, I fast, and I fast really fast, and my fasting is better than ever. I'm like... Fast and Furious 7, I'm fasting so much, it's, it's amazing. I tithe and I give more than I ever have before. I go to church. But what happened? He attacked another human being. He violated the love that God called him to. And what he did by doing it is he made the idea of a life following God look obnoxious to people who are watching him. That's what he did. Dallas Willard wrote, Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued as or pursued a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. So, How much of the Pharisee do you have in you? Do you ever find yourself passing judgment on somebody? Do you ever find yourself maybe uh, a little happy when somebody fails, maybe in the same, like, line of work that you do, and you're like, thank God it wasn't me. You're like, ha, 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 you got it, sucker. You know, do you you know anybody who has a personality that's hard for you to deal with? Maybe somebody who wears clothes you don't like or music you don't like or someone whose politics are different or somebody whose theology is a little messed up. Your judgment and lovelessness of that person leaves your soul worse off than that person is that you're pointing out the sin in. See, and, and a lot of times the problem is we don't even know it. But now you do. You're welcome. <laughs> the truth is, guys, look, we don't need self-help. We do not need self-help. We need Jesus. We are jacked up, and we need God to come and wipe away our mess of self-centeredness. We don't need self-help, self-esteem. We do not need more of ourselves ourselves are the ones who cause these issues we need jesus and until we understand that we need jesus we're going to be hopelessly lost pharisees i mean jesus comes and the understanding of the gospel and salvation is that we have a god who has sought us and redeemed us and bought us and that changes everything it changes pride and self-centered because we cannot be self-centered because it's not about us 
It's about what he has done. This is why we bring you guys to communion every single week, where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. So all of the self-centered, working it out on our own, trying to make ourselves right in God's eyes, is taken care of by Christ at the cross and resurrection. This is what we remember at communion. And you lay down your pride and all of your works there because they mean nothing. They mean nothing. What we live in is the grace and truth of humility and walking with Christ because he is the one who calls us to great things because he is the one who has done great things. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion, be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you guys need prayer, and maybe you're in a spot today where you've thought, I'm I'm such a Pharisee. I think it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And maybe God's working on your heart where it's not all about you. They would love to pray with you. They'd love to talk to you about Jesus. They'd love to, you know, spend some time. If you have any needs, they'd love to pray with you. Not just about that, but really about anything. And there's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is be part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done and what he continues to do in us. Uh, There is food in the back. Oh, no, actually, there's not. I told them not to bring food for this service because you guys need to get out and go get some cookies. <laughs> and then come to baptism. Okay? No food back there. I'm judging you all right now. Got some cookies. Come, come to baptisms and, and enjoy the party with us today. And, you know, and God places you and I in community with one another. He saves us individually, yes. But he intends for us to do life together. This is why we are always pushing community, always. This is why, and, you know, we want you to sign up for a gospel community. We want you to connect with other people. We want you to go out to lunch with people. We want you to hang out with, because when we begin to live that way, and we're honest enough with one another to live in community centered around the gospel, we point out where each of us are, you know, becoming Pharisees. We help one another to grow and understand Christ better. We walk with one another in ways that reflect who he is. Because it's not about us. It's about him and what he has done. So, come to baptism today. Don't feed my dog. Please. And let's live and walk in the grace of Christ. Please. (laughs) Don't feed my dog. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask uh, that you would teach us what it means to live and walk in the grace that you have provided. That you would deliver us from ourselves. And how we so constantly want to put ourselves at the center of everything. And not live with you as the center. Teach us to lay aside our pride and all of our own accomplishments. Teach us to be a people who put you first above all things. That our lives would honor you in ways big and small. That we would understand that, that it's okay with one another to, to point out places where each other are failing, but not for the point of judgment, for the point of lifting each other up so we would grow more full into the people you were calling us to be. A people centered on your grace and goodness. Uh, a group of people who understand that we are your children, saved and bought by you and your blood. That it is not about what we do. It is about what you have done and continue to do. Teach us to live, not in our own righteousness, but in your righteousness. 
teach us to live in this world as your ambassadors in humility, humbleness, and grace. Teach us to honor you by all that we do. We ask this in your son's great and good name. Amen.